The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Sam Bankman-Fried went from crypto hero to almost zero in less than two weeks. The collapse of his financial empire, FTX, has raised a bunch of questions. I invited Jeremy Allaire, the CEO of financial technology firm Circle, to offer up some answers. Welcome to The Exchange, a conversation with people of interest to business and finance professionals around the world. I'm John Foley, an editor and columnist at Reuters Breaking Views. Now, the fall of FTX is pretty spectacular. Even if you didn't use it to trade cryptocurrency, you probably recognised its founder, the youthful and wild-haired Sam Bankman-Fried. He was rapidly becoming a household name and had advocated for crypto in Washington, D.C., right alongside Jeremy, who you're about to hear from. When rumours around FTX's finances started swirling earlier in November, customers rushed to get their money out and they found, in an unexpected plot twist, that their funds weren't there. FTX has now filed for bankruptcy. Jeremy has views on all of this, as you might expect. I talked with him about what went wrong and what this means for USD coin, the stablecoin that Circle issues. Jeremy also talks regulation, the idea of Circle becoming a bank, and his views on the cult of the crypto personality. Give it a listen. Jeremy, it's been quite a week. We are all a little bit older and possibly a bit wiser, although I'm not so sure how wise I feel right now. Help us by explaining, if you can, what just happened in the crypto world. Yeah, thanks, John. You know, I, I think there are a number of things. I, I think you know, the first is obviously that a large, you know, significant scale trading platform in the digital asset space appears to have, you know, taken inordinate risks with customer funds across, you know, a a diverse uh, set of different business interests that they had. And those risks exploded on them um, and, uh, and, and led to a kind of death spiral collapse uh, as, as people say um, of that platform itself. Now, this has happened in other financial institutions. This has happened in other digital asset companies, crypto uh, projects, and the like in a variety of different forms. I think what makes this particular event so noteworthy is that the, the, the principle behind it, I think, led many very intelligent people and market participants to believe that he was running a tight ship and running a a, a, a serious operation. Um, and I think it has taken many, many people by huge surprise that, in fact, underneath the hood, this financial institution, just to be clear, this is a this is a global financial institution, was using customer funds it appears, you know, illegitimately and, and so forth. So at a high level, that's sort of what's happened. I think to put it in a little bit of context, I think what's notable is that there is this distinction between the technology of digital assets and blockchains and then the different kinds of businesses and intermediaries that have been built up around it. And, and so you have you know, kind of decentralized intermediaries and you have centralized intermediaries. FTX was 
a very, very much a very centralized intermediary. And then within that realm of different types of intermediaries, and let's just be clear, by intermediary, I'm, I'm really talking about different kinds of financial institutions. They may be providing bank-like services, brokerage-like services, uh, exchange-like services, market-making services. A lot of the roles that you see in traditional finance, a lot of these intermediaries playing these roles. And in some cases, those being vertically integrated. And, and that's, I think, the part of the essence of the story here, which is that you have kind of onshore regulated companies who are subject to various levels of regulatory supervision that have, you know, proper control structures. Um, you have companies that are publicly listed or companies like Circle who are in the public registration process with all the scrutiny that that entails. And then you have companies who chose to kind of compete in the very wild west, very aggressive, competitive offshore markets. And FTX International was sort of an example of a company who was trying to straddle the line. They had some onshore things they were doing, but the overwhelming amount of the business was this offshore opaque, you know, largely unregulated, lacking the kinds of control control structures that you'd expect even from a basic financial institution, it now appears. And so I think a, a big takeaway here is we have to have stronger control structures and supervision. And some of that can be from the technology itself, these so-called proof of reserves, things like that, which we can talk about. And some of that just has to be, we need policies that make sure that these, these types of, of intermediaries that are dealing with all this new kind of digital money are appropriately regulated. So there's a key distinction there that you've just drawn for us between the onshore regulated and increasingly regulated side of crypto and the offshore. And clearly FTX is basically split into two, well, I mean, it, from the bankruptcy filing, we can see it's split into hundreds of parts, but it's split into broadly speaking two. There's the US bit, which was regulated and quite narrow in terms of what customers could do. And then there was the offshore bit, which was much broader. And, and as far as I understand, Americans couldn't even use the offshore bit. They, they were blocked from investing in FTX and were limited to using FTX US. And yet when we look at the bankruptcy filing, we can see that there are more than 100,000 creditors of FTX. Yeah. I'm assuming that most of these then are not average Americans. Who are they? Well, so I think this gets to um, a couple of issues. I think one is the nature of these markets. Digital asset markets, crypto markets are highly global. Um, and it's not like you have a regional stock exchange where a company decides I'm going to list my stock or my bond on this particular exchange. You know, these digital assets exist everywhere all at once. It's the internet. So it's just like, you know, you've got a, a website, it exists everywhere, a digital asset, and even, even you know, a, a, a digital token, they exist everywhere. And so you've got regulated markets, you've got onshore markets, offshore markets, you've got all these markets, and but they're all essentially trading the same digital assets. And so there's this deep interconnection between those markets. What that also means is that you know, the the market participants, the biggest market participants who are institutions, not individuals, there's an enormous amount of institutional activity in this in this space. 
and by that I don't necessarily mean like you know this or that pension fund. I'm talking about the actual trading of digital assets. There's an enormous amount of institutional activity. All of these offshore venues have very deep nexus with the United States. They all do. And I think as this particular situation evolves, it is one of the reasons why you will see the US Department of Justice, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the CFTC, and likely other US enforcement agencies pursuing actions and activity with respect to FTX International because there is a deep nexus. And that nexus comes in the form of many, many institutions who are principally United States based, whether it's a crypto project or an electronic markets firm, they may have offshore entities and so on. But the reality is these are deeply interconnected. There's a lot of institutional nexus. And when you look at, you know, the kind of biggest kind of creditors that are, that are, you know, listed, a lot of those have their headquarters in the United States um, and are projects that are in Silicon Valley. And so I think, you know, there's a phrase that is used in, in, in kind of legal and regulatory environments of, you know, you can kind of pierce the veil of these different types of, of structures. And I think there's going to be a lot of that happening here. Talking about interconnections, it does seem like the link between crypto and mainstream finance is quite limited, certainly based on the way the market is treating the FTX situation. But but there is a, a high degree of interconnection between these crypto firms themselves. And when we think back to where all this started, I mean, there are rumors that this basically started with the collapse of Terra, the stablecoin mm -hmm. in May, and then that led to the failure of a crypto hedge fund, Three Arrows, and then that apparently created problems for Alameda Research, which was the trading arm market maker, what have you, of FTX. So so there's a kind of, there's like a domino rally almost of, of interconnected businesses. Yeah. So even if crypto isn't necessarily going to cause contagion in the in the sort of quote real world, by which I mean the traditional world of finance, sure. or even the traditional world of tech, how should we think about the contagion within crypto? Because it, it does seem a bit like once the fire starts burning, it just, there's a risk that it kind of rages out of control within that crypto universe. Well, I think, you know, you, you correctly point out, right, when, when uh, you know, a year ago, approximately, Chairman Powell indicated that he was turning uh, hawkish, uh, we started to see, you know, a, a lot of risks start coming out of markets. And you, what you end up with there is you find a lot of people who um, have either, you know, over leverage or uh, are propped up on a speculative basis or any number of things. And as those unwind, there's cascading kind of, there's cascading effects, right? And I think in particular in within the crypto ecosystem, because policymakers have been so slow to define reasonable and sound policy around crypto, it's left a lot of individuals exposed to entities where there's just not been the appropriate level of, of risk management controls, control structures and supervision. And so you've seen these kind of cascading issues there that are in some ways worse. Now, what's interesting is there's been no bailouts. Um, there's been 
you know, there's been you know, market capitalization loss of over $2 trillion. Like you said, and Janet Yellen reinforces this whenever she's asked by Congress, it's not, this is not a, a systemic risk to the, the financial system, but it needs to be regulated, right? So that's been kind of the reaction. And I think as you kind of look at where we are today, okay, FTX, it's got 8 billion of liabilities uh, that maybe can't be paid. That's going to affect a whole bunch of different firms. It's going to affect other exchanges, brokerages. Uh, it's going to affect various funds who maybe uh, are, are, you know, have had the double whammy of falling prices plus illiquidity and redemptions and kind of classic stuff, right? So I do expect you're going to see more, more kind of contagion, if you want to call it that. Um, and I think for, for a lot of us who have been trying to do things in a, in a transparent way with risk management, with regulation and, and the like, you know, in some ways it's a good thing that we're going to see some kind of felling of people who, who, who were, were, you know, not acting with integrity or, or, or didn't have sufficient controls. And so I think some of that is Schumpeter's uh, creative destruction at work here or whatever you want, however you want to think about that. But I think in the context of, a, of, a, of an asset class that has lost over $2 trillion, there's only so much further it, it, it can go on that. So a lot of people are kind of calling the aftermath of this is probably is effectively the bottom in, in, in the space, but there, there, will be, there will be more impact. And I think hopefully from our perspective, with, with a, a lot more pressure on governments to now get their regulatory house in order around this, um, and a lot more pressure within the industry itself on itself to significantly improve its levels of risk management and disclosure, even ahead of regulation, that we can see some strengthening there over time. But you know, there's some other bigger picture, you know, kind of themes here um, that have to do with kind of where 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 crypto goes from here, which I'd be happy to talk about. But that's my thoughts on on that high level question. Um, I, I want to talk more about the regulation because obviously there is there is a need for that, and you've championed more regulation, and there is currently a possibly a gap in the market for someone to become the front person for that. Now that Sam Bank and Fried is otherwise engaged, I want to just first talk about Circle a bit though, because you 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 got out there on Twitter and you explained in a Twitter thread how Circle was interconnected um, with all of all of this stuff, and you you said you know we didn't lend to um, FTX, but we are. We have a tiny stake in them. They have a tiny stake in us. You've talked about how you know, a lot of people were taken by surprise when this happened. Were you taken by surprise? And and if you are an investor in FTX, why were you taken by surprise? Yeah. So just for context, Circle has a, a pretty limited uh, amount of capital that we have used over the past you know couple of years to make very small investments in a broad range of, of different types of projects and companies in the digital asset ecosystem. Um, these are typically very small checks. Uh, we are not a, a major investor. We don't have a venture fund business. We're not, we don't have limited partners. So it's a, it's a fairly small piece. And, you know, when we made a, a small investment in FTX back in, I think it was early to yeah, spring 2021, they were on an extraordinary growth path. Um, and, you know, I think 
to all of the investors, many of whom are some of the most sophisticated investors in the world, they, you know, the, the financial results were very, very significant. And, you know, at face value, Sam was really working hard to try and build something that was trying to advance, you know, building a regulated model for the industry. And so at, you know, at face value, I think that that kind of combination uh, of things seemed like a, you know, a strong thesis. Now for, for us, it's, it's sort of immaterial from a financial perspective. I think for others, it may not be immaterial. To answer your other question, yes, absolutely has taken us by surprise. And I think um, Sam kind of both in terms of how he presents and, and I think the, the kind of concept that they, you know, in house testimony, he talked about how their kind of risk management system was, was one of the strongest in the world and had the best consumer protections available. Um, that's testimony to Congress. You know, it's, um, it's just re reconciling, you know, what, what we're now learning or what we think we've learned with that is, is, is shocking, um, really shocking and, and certainly has taken, uh, taken me by surprise. Did uh, just uh, rounding off that uh, that issue of the equity stake, did that come with for you or for other investors any visibility into FTX's controls or processes or way of doing things that that maybe we wouldn't have seen from the outside and even wouldn't necessarily have seen in the congressional hearings where you know obviously SBF sat next to you at one stage talking about this to yeah the House committee certainly not for us. And I, I can't speak for any of their large investors. Um, as a very small kind of minority investor, I think we we would get periodic, uh, you know, kind of um, unaudited and audited financial statements, but no no visibility at the kind of deeper operational level. You know, one of the takeaways for me on some of this is is that, you know, especially in these largely unregulated or the offshore dimension of this in particular, where you have kind of completely founder controlled companies uh, that, you know, don't have real boards of directors and are not subject to the kind of control requirements that regulated financial institutions do, you end up in situations where, you know, you have, you can have perverse incentives um, and you end up in situations where, conflicts of interest can exist. You know, there's a reason why in say most mature financial markets, I'll use the United States as an example, there are clear conflict of interest structures and market structures that have been put in place from a regulatory perspective. So banks can't run exchanges and exchanges can't run market making firms. And those market conduct issues and conflict of interest issues are real and they've proven themselves to be problematic. And yet you've got companies that are completely controlled by a single person with no board, with no supervision and with inherent built-in conflict issues. And so in some respects, I think one might step back and say, yeah, it's kind of obvious these kinds of things could happen um, at, at some level. You also have very, you have sophisticated investors who were buying into these companies, n presumably knowing that these conflicts were possible, but tolerating them until they didn't. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I can't speak on behalf of, of, uh, of, of any of those uh, sophisticated investors and, and their own processes uh, on that. You've argued for regulation, um, Sam Bankman-Fried argued for regulation too. Wh where does that 
go now. The piece of legislation that was kind of out in front seemed recent, until recently to be this Digital Commodities and Consumer Protection Act, which SBF had championed and would push oversight of uh, a lot of digital assets and services in the US to the CFTC, the Commodities Regulator. What happens now, do you think? Yeah. Because there is a risk that there's like a ring of fire effectively around FTX and that anything that was connected with it now finds itself in, you know, discredited effectively at the same time as you say there's more need for regulation than there ever has been so what yeah. how do you see this playing out in the near term i do expect to see um significant action uh, out of congress around regulation in the space um the two areas of most significant focus the highest priority for the administration uh, and the and the largest and most important regulators in some ways in, in parts of this has been stable coins. And we've had obviously one collapse in that space um, and a lot of commercial progress in the space as well. And so there's a real impetus to have a payment stablecoin bill. You've seen statements from the key, uh, you know, kind of key congressional leaders subsequent to these events last week reinforcing how, how this underscores the importance of acting on that legislation. So I think we will see movement on that. And that's a really key foundational building block because you're talking about kind of the cash and cash settlement side, the kind of payments and banking side of this, um, which is really key and touches everything. And right. then the when we talk about stablecoin, we're talking about kind of digital assets of a predictable value that are linked usually to the US dollar that you can use as kind of working capital. You can you know, store value in it between transactions, that kind of thing. That's right. So um, the word stablecoin gets used and abused in a lot of different ways. There's stable in name only. Uh, and then mm -hmm. there are, you know, kind of digital cash equivalent instruments like USDC, which is the stablecoin that Circle issues where we've been regulated under electronic money and payments law since we launched it, similar to like PayPal or Stripe or Apple Pay, where we have to hold 100% of the dollars for every electronic you know, token uh, that's outstanding. Um, and we're held to very specific standards on the kind of liquidity and solvency and other things. And then there, there are folks who you know, operate offshore dollar stable coins where they might be investing in junk bonds and, and in gold and in Bitcoin and in other things and are a mixture of things which could, you know, create real risks uh, for, for the holders of those purportedly dollar tokens. Now, I think the, the legislation and the, and the kind of proposed regulation in this space would establish that dollar stable coins are a kind of form of dollar electronic money in the US financial system. And they would be you know, regulated by the Federal Reserve as a kind of core part of the dollar banking system. And there could be banks and large non-banks that could issue these and have a very specific set of very narrow capabilities. Like the, you can only hold the highest quality liquid assets like short-term government you know, bonds, cash at the Fed, uh, you'd, you'd have, you know, kind of bank-like enterprise risk controls around you. And so that's kind of what's proposed going forward is to say a payment stable coin, which is something that anyone, whether it's a household or a firm or another financial institution would accept to settle a dollar payment. 
would be would be regulated and defined and and therefore would create a kind of perimeter of protection and 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 supervision on this as a new kind of way to use dollars on the internet and that's what's really being promoted there so i just want to reflect something that that does come up with with circle and with us dollar coin which is that so if i go to a bank and i need my money back it's i can get it instantly and this is obviously a, a big issue with ftx is that when customers yeah. came for their money back the money wasn't there with your stable coin the money is basically there right a lot of it is stored in treasuries but treasury That's still right. have like a one day lag before you can turn those into into get there's like a settlement period yeah. how then how should we think about that because things can go very wrong in a day how do you get around that yeah so we provide customers with the ability to redeem on demand and we publish details of the reserves all the way down to the serial numbers of the treasury bonds that we hold so everyone can see exactly what it is and the maturity and, and liquidity. But we also publish th that approximately 20% is in cash and 80% is in these short duration US treasuries. And so we have the ability to provide sufficient liquidity. We've actually published a paper which talks about the kind of liquidity characteristics of USDC versus banks. And we're dramatically more liquid than banks, Dr dramatically more liquid than banks. And what would happen if 30% of your USD holders wanted their money back on the same day? Yeah. So I think it depends on, you know, what time of day all those things are, are happening. Uh, in terms of uh, you know treasury liquidity, one of the things that we are putting in place is uh, something that we actually publicly talked about just a couple of weeks ago, which is we worked closely with BlackRock to establish something called the Circle Reserve Fund, and the Circle Reserve Fund is a what's called a two A seven fund, which is a government money market fund. Its sole purpose is to hold the the treasury bill liquidity and assets of USDC. And it provides SEC supervision as a registered investment fund product. It provides an independent audit and an independent board, but it also provides daily visibility into the treasury bond program as well. Uh, and that's being kind of populated as we speak. Eventually, that would also provide us the ability to hold cash at the Fed. And so even further lowering the, the risk there. And I think that's the end state that we want to get to. And which is also reflected, I think, in the bill uh, that is working its way through Congress, which is how do you create something that is a true digital cash equivalent that works on the internet, that works with the speed and convenience and efficiency of the internet and blockchains, uh, but has kind of fundamentally is as close as possible to kind of government debt obligation money uh, available. And so all these are aimed at increasing liquidity, transparency, and, and ultimately the usability of these types of digital currencies. Got it. So once you have that access to the Fed, then you do, you have that instant liquidity. And in the meantime, you kind of hope that you never have a moment where... We, you know, we where basically, we have the, we are constantly managing our own liquidity against activities. And we've published, you know, for example, you know, the highest levels of, of liquidity demands and stress periods and other things. We've published data around that as well, which is also some of the analysis that we've we've done around the kind of you know fundamental liquidity of USDC versus 
you know, e even other forms of go government money market structures as well. So I, I think um, there's a lot more to do there, though. I mean, I think, as as you know, that there there are extraordinary tail risks. Um, the U.S. government could default on its debt, um, for example. In, and, you know, would the U.S. government be unable to pay its short-term obligations? That would affect a hell of a lot more than USDC. That would affect, you know, Please. kind of... The, the, the world as a whole. We're not quite there yet, thankfully. A broader question on crypto regulation. If the goal is to regulate crypto more like traditional finance, ultimately, once you reach that point, how is crypto actually any better than traditional finance? Because it seems to me that one of the advantages of it has been that it's not tied up in the same kind of red tape as a JP Morgan. You know, we're used to hearing the chief executives of Wall Street banks complain about the sheer weight of the paper that burdens them when they're doing business and how they have to have like a psychiatrist and a lawyer on hand for every single decision they make and a paper trail. So as you regulate crypto more heavily, do you effectively just make it more similar to traditional finance in a bad way too? Um, I certainly hope not. <laughs> I think you know, the, the, the key issue here is that what is being built up and has been being built up over the past 10 years is essentially a new set of public internet infrastructure. And, you know, public blockchain infrastructure represents, in my view, a kind of new operating system layer for the internet. And that new operating system layer for the internet can support a lot of different types of applications. It can support financial applications, it can support other consumer applications, business applications, but we're building up a, a, a major new infrastructure layer of the internet, which allows for immutable data. It allows for trustless ways of, of interacting and transacting with counterparties over the public internet, which hasn't been possible before. Just it to say, like, trustless means, does not mean untrusted right trustless here means you don't need to rely on trust in order to make that's right you can use math and cryptography to prove the validity of a transaction or prove the validity of of certain you know computation that some you know some kind of change to data has occurred and so this these kinds of public infrastructures are really profound in what they allow for and the result of that is you can start to build financial infrastructure, whether it be something as basic as how you can transmit and settle a dollar transaction to more sophisticated forms of financial interaction, which is how a firm you know, borrows from another firm or how a, a payroll relationship exists between suppliers, you know, a, a payment relationship exists between suppliers and buyers to more complex things like um, the, the, the pricing and liquidity and exchange of a financial derivative. So all of these things can be built up on this public infrastructure. And what it ultimately allows for is more transparency, greater security, greater auditability, more capital efficiency, more just straight through cost efficiency, and an open infrastructure that you know, anyone in the world in theory, right, can build on and integrate to. And so it's a kind of internet infrastructure layer for financial activity. And that I don't think changes. That's not going away. And that's what really is what is going to be built up on this. And it should ultimately, in my view, it should result in a more open, more inclusive, 
more safe and more efficient financial system. We got a long way to go on that. That's ultimately the promise of this. And I don't think the the you know the incidence of a offshore unregulated global scale you know speculative trading platform uh, takes away from that end goal and that end state. But does does it matter what the U.S. does if other jurisdictions don't follow? And by that I mean, obviously, it does matter because if there is a regulated and safe way of investing in crypto in the U.S., then lots of customers will prefer that. But that's right. That money will always flow to places with fewest controls, and those well, places with fewest controls will probably generate highest returns in good times. It's a really good question, and I think I'm going to actually step into Chair Gensler's shoes here for a moment. And Chair Gensler, I think, makes the case that. The American capital markets are the envy of the world. And he says that, and he says the reason they're the envy of the world is because they have this really strong rules-based framework around them that makes it so that companies that want to list their shares want to do it in the United States, that you know investors that want to purchase and make investments want to prefer to do that in these venues. It has a strong currency. It has a strong management of that currency. So there are these attributes that are there that are very significant that have created kind of network effects, right? Network effects for the currency, network effects for the capital markets. And it's the strength of that that has made America such a, a leading environment. And I, I think that the same can be true in digital assets. And I actually think that there's a bit of a race on between Europe UK, Singapore, Tokyo, and the United States and others to get it right. Because I think the digital asset ecosystem is here to stay. It's going to be large and growing. It's going to touch lots of companies and lots of businesses and lots of households. And I think if you have a sound and strong framework that also acknowledges what's new and different about this technology, and I think that's been one of the challenges is that regulation needs to not kind of do the square peg round hole thing. It needs to be tailored to the technology. But if you can get that right, then then projects and people and companies and investors and others in this space will flock to the United States and, and the United States can lead. Got it. I have two more quick questions for you, if that's okay. And then I'll leave sure. you in peace. You said last year that Circle was interested in applying for a bank charter and there's nothing a company of anything that signifies mainstream acceptance into the financial system more than becoming a bank where is that process currently do you yeah. still want to be a bank and do you think that what's been what's happened in the last few days with ftx and the general sense of anxiety around crypto is going to set you back in that goal of achieving mainstream acceptance through this coveted bank charter yeah so what we announced and began pursuing is the idea of a full reserve dollar digital currency bank at the national level. That's what we're interested in. I don't want to create a fractional reserve commercial lending bank. I want to build a, a kind of payment system bank. Um, and so we absolutely began meaningful dialogue with national banking regulators subsequent to that. And I think what emerged was that the, the major, you know, the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve, who supervise the banking system, had a strong preference for establishing a new type of national regulation over a business like a full reserve digital currency issuer. 
aka a stablecoin issuer. And so I think in many ways, we are dependent on statutory progress. We are dependent on statutes that define the characteristics of this type of financial institution, how it should be chartered, how it should be supervised. And I think the good news there is that you know, different parts of the US Treasury and different parts of the Fed, they've spent a lot of time looking at this. And I think the legislation that's being considered in Congress reflects a lot of that work and that thinking. And if something like that came to pass, we would, I believe, be first in line. I would attempt to make us first in line to try and be chartered in that way. There are other ways in there, aren't there? Well, you could, for example, buy yourself um, an well, industrial loan company in Utah. That's something that recommends. But we're not we're not trying to build a lending institution, um, right. you know. And and I think our view is that this is a very specific type of business and operation. And my view is. It, it's got it's got to be kind of tailored in the, the right kind of way. All right. So rounding off Sam Bankman Freed, one of the reasons that he seems to be have been so trusted and everyone's so taken aback by what's happened is because he was so familiar, right? He was he, as we said, he appeared alongside you in front of Congress. He was, was instantly recognizable. And unlike some of the crypto failures that we've seen over the last few months, three arrows, terror and so on, which those names don't necessarily resonate in the real economy, but FTX absolutely does. It's literally slapped on a, an arena in Florida, sports arena that's sponsored you know, the Mercedes Formula One team. So now what we're lacking is a front person for crypto, a, a highly recognizable and non, um, non-disgraced crypto front person. Do we need that and who's going to do it? So I don't particularly like the cult of personality kind of stuff. Um, you know, I, I think um, you know, th- there needs to be a lot of great leadership across this industry and in civil society and and and, and more broadly on these things. I've certainly put in uh, a lot of effort for nine years going to the Hill and testifying many times. And we as a firm invest a lot in policy and regulatory engagement and continue to not just in the United States, but but all around the world. But I think there's other, you know, significant companies doing the same, like Coinbase is doing, I think, an enormous amount of that work as an example. And, you know, we're part of broader um, associations and, and firms that that have some major, major financial institutions and, and major other kind of, of firms there. So I don't I don't know that it needs to be, hey, there's this front person who who's out there. Um, I think um, it is a moment, though, where um, I think some of the major leaders in the space, and I'll count myself among those, need to be really present and visible and communicating and engaging with policymakers more than ever. And I think, you know, I, I remain, uh, you know, cautiously optimistic that on the other side of this, we're going to have an industry that's focused on utility and and on on, on value from utility, and we're going to have policymakers focused on, you know, rolling up their sleeves and really digging in and figuring out how to um, you know, get this right and put in place the kinds of structures that both can allow this industry to grow and thrive, but also really address some of the very, very clear major kind of market and other risks that that have exploded on people. Hallelujah to that. Well, thank you very much, Jeremy. Thanks for engaging with us today. Much appreciated. You're welcome.
Thanks for tuning into The Exchange. This podcast was produced by our dream team of Amanda Gomez and Sharon Lamb. You can find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you go for your favourite podcasts. Also, don't forget to check out our other podcast, The Views Room, and read our views on finance at breakingviews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at breakingviews.